Hey, and welcome to the CCWC podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. We continue this series on This We Believe. What do we believe? Why do we believe it? Why is it important? Why do these things that we've learned about in Scripture or throughout Christian history, why do they matter? And what does it mean when we believe them? What does it mean to be even Wesleyan? Two weeks ago, um, my family and I, we uh, were blessed to, to go on uh, an excursion, a vacation, and uh, went to the ocean. For one of my children, it was the first time he ever saw the ocean, and for my other two, it was the first time in recent memory, because they could not remember when we went the last time, which was because they were very young. I remember the ocean very well, but this time I remembered it a bit differently than I had in the past. In fact, some of the things that I remember from before um, was that it was a lot more carefree, that you could kind of just jump in and have fun. But I felt like this time the ocean had a different attitude towards me. I felt like the ocean was saying to me, I don't want you in here, right? I remember first night we got there, we decided to go get in, and I ran in and immediately ran across about a two-yard section that spanned the entire beach right into the water where you couldn't see that we affectionately called the shards of gravel pit, where it was just shells that would stick into, I mean, it's basically, if you're a parent, you know that there's the Lego pit sometimes that forms, and when you walk across the Legos, what happens to your feet, right? This is kind of the same thing, only afterwards you didn't laugh and tell your kid to, che- to clean up their room. This was like, okay, I don't want to be in here anymore. And then the next day I was there, the next morning we went out, and I was, um, I was body surfing or, or boogie boarding or whatever you want to call it on one of those little uh, styrofoam uh, boogie boards. And I, I was out there, and I was, I was trying to catch the waves. And for some reason, uh, one of the waves decided to topple me, and I began to roll. And my face found its way into the bottom of the ocean, right? Ocean one, Pastor Steve, zero, right? And so I came up, and immediately I looked at my son, and I saw his eyes and thought, this is not good, because I could tell there was blood coming down my face. And so I went into the room and began with tweezers to pull little pieces of gravel shards out of my, my face. That was a, a secondary thing. The third day we're out, and between my wife and myself, we're about 10 yards from each other, I see fins fluttering through and recognize that there's a just a nice little pleasant shark swimming between us. And as we were there, for me, I would say it was good beach weather because I'm not one that loves the sun. And in fact, when the sun was out for a few days while we were there, I sat under an umbrella. It was mostly overcast, and it was kind of stormy, balmy weather, which I enjoyed, but it also brought forth some large waves. And by middle of the week, I found myself trying to fight through waves just to get to a place where I could stand up. The ocean was saying, Steve, I don't want you here. So I came back, just so you know. But it's interesting when I think about this illustration and this thought that that sometimes is the pattern, not really sometimes, it is the pattern of the world when we bring forth the truth. 
In essence, when you and I bring forth the truth, which this is commanded or this is, this is prescribed, this is understood from Scripture, that the message is not always going to be welcomed by the world. Now, ultimately, the Spirit is at work and softens hearts, and we recognize that, but, but Jesus was persecuted, and we as Christ's followers should understand that there will be persecution in our lives if we choose to follow Him as well. And sometimes the world is going to say, get out of here, we don't want you here. Well, ultimately today, as we walk through the two sacraments, what we're going to cover today, the Wesleyan Church believes in two sacraments, that is uh, baptism and that is Holy Communion. We're going to talk about these two elements, and I think sometimes when we look at them, maybe if we step back, we look at them, we might wonder, why do we do that? Where did that come from? We're going to talk about the kind of the historical context of where these come from and why they apply today, but we're going to talk about something much, much deeper. We're not just going to talk about ritual. We're not just going to talk about practice. We're going to look at and we're going to highlight and we're going to focus on the personal because I will, I will tell you this. While the world is going to push back, especially as we bring real truth, truth that is in Scripture, not subjective truth that changes based upon the culture, when we bring forth real truth, the, the world is going to push back on that truth. But when we make it personal, we experience it personally, and when Christ is personal in the lives of a person, they will not push back. Because his love is greater than anything else. And while there may be, and we, we know that to be true because we've experienced that. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've experienced that. Finally, you said, you know what? I'm not going to push back anymore. I want this. I want this relationship. I want to experience this unconditional love. I want this grace. I want this mercy. God, be my Savior. So today, as we look at these two sacraments, I'm going to start by reading paragraph 242, as I've done the last several times. The sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe that water baptism and the Lord's Supper are the sacraments of the church, commanded by Christ and ordained as a means of grace. When received through faith, they are tokens of our profession of Christian faith and signs of God's gracious ministry toward us. By them, he works within us to quicken, strengthen, and confirm our faith. We believe that water baptism is a sacrament of the church commanded by our Lord and administered to believers. It is a symbol of the new covenant of grace and signifies acceptance of the benefits of the atonement of Jesus Christ. By means of this sac sacrament, believers declare their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. We believe that the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of our, our redemption by Christ's death and of our hope in his victorious return as well as a sign of the Lord that Christians have for each other. To such as receive it humbly, with a proper spirit and by faith, the Lord's Supper is made a means through which God communicates grace to the heart. Now we take the Lord's Supper, we come together in communion once per month, the first Sunday of the month here at CCWC, and we have a baptism service one or two, three, maybe four times a year based upon the need for it. This, takes, this, this, this time today, this week, I want to take a dive into and, and deeply clarify the meaning for which we do these two things. It's interesting, I remember back uh, the different ceremonies or the different times in life when I was younger, I was a child. 
Uh, maybe when someone had a baby. I remember when my sister had my first niece, and I went, and I was there, and I, I held my niece, and I was like, wow, this is really neat. My sister is now a mom, and she was the first of my siblings to have any babies. I remember going to graduations for my siblings and for my cousins, and I remember going to graduation ceremonies. I remember going to weddings, and I don't know about you, but as a child, the wedding uh, at my church, everybody was basically invited. It was a smaller church, and everybody was invited, so we would go to the wedding, and we'd celebrate with our church family, but the thing I was always thinking about, right? Maybe for you it's different. I was thinking about that food. Like, what are we going to have at that meal? I'm really getting hungry. But it's interesting, when I had my first child, when I graduated from any kind of school, when I got married, it became deeply personal. I was then involved. It wasn't necessarily a ritual that I watched. It was something that I participated in in a personal way. In fact, both of these elements, both of these sacraments are personal, not just a ritual. I want to walk through a a sacramental journey this morning as we walk through and look at these two specific elements. And the sacramental journey, uh, what I want to do is look at the historical context of communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, and then also of baptism. And then how do they fit with us today? First, we'll just start. I'm going to walk through some points. First, we'll start with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is this. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a service of Christian worship where bread and juice are consecrated, shared, and consumed in remembrance of Christ. Now, let me say this is, this is uh, cataloged in Scripture. This is where this comes from. Um, but should it just be that definition, that seems pretty hollow. That seems uh, like uh, really almost like something that anybody could practice in any way, in any atmosphere or climate. The Lord's Supper is a Christian sacrament commemorating the, Lord, the, the Last Supper by consecrating uh, the bread and the, and the juice or the wine In other terms, communion is a verb, actually. It's when we come together. That's the communal part of it. That's the corporate part of it, where we gather together. And Eucharist, you might think, oh, that's uh, for other practices. That's not us. No, Eucharist is actually a noun that just simply means thanksgiving. It's a moment where we thank God for what he's done. So Holy Communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, all of these, the bread and, and, and the juice, these are a, a means or a place of communion, but, of, of remembrance. But why do they matter, Right? Why does the cup matter? Why uh, does the bread matter? Wh- where do they come from? What are they a part of? Well, early on, the Israelites, they would have recognized the need for remembrance, and they needed to remember, remember, or they needed to have this time of remembrance because of what God had done in their life. They were living in captivity, actually, uh, in, in Egypt. And as they lived in captivity, they were slaves. They were meant to, to, to do specific things. Their life was not their own. Their master was, was one of, uh, of evil and, and, um, and was not God-honoring, God-fearing. And as they lived in, in Egypt in captivity, one of the things that they recognized was that their king, they weren't able to worship or be in the presence of their king, which was God. And so what took place at a certain point is God said, okay, I want to I purify and I want to bring you to a place of freedom. I want you to experience real freedom. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to deliver you from the captivity to which you now belong, where you now reside. And so here's the process of what we're going to do. And you walk through uh, trying to bring forth a, a, an escape route, basically, so to speak, with the, uh, through this guy that named, uh, anybody know his name? Moses, 
Okay, if you've been to Sunday school, you know there's usually two right answers, Jesus and Moses. Those are the two. So, so Moses, he, he, he eventually, he kind of fights it to begin with, but he follows God and he goes and he, he goes to the leader, Pharaoh, and he says, look, here's, here's what's, what's taking place and God's called us out and we're going to leave. And so God brings some, some different plagues upon the Egyptian people. And finally, the last one that he brings is what commemorates, it's the, it's the night, it's the evening of Passover. Now, Passover is now celebrated by the Jewish people and has been celebrated since this day. It's the moment by which Jesus said, okay, you need to take a perfect, or God said, you need to take a perfect lamb and you need to sacrifice that perfect lamb by taking the blood of the lamb, putting it above your door and on the sides of your doorposts so that the, the, uh, the, the angel of death will pass over, that's where we get that word, pass over your home and not kill your firstborn as it's going to for those who do not follow. And so the recognition was that there needed to be a specific sacrifice. The blood and the body of a perfect lamb needed to be sacrificed in order for them to experience freedom. You might see where I'm going at this point, but I'm going to continue on. So the blood of perfect lamb was, was practiced throughout a thousand years. And, 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 and through all of this, every year at that, that moment of, of Passover, that night, the Jewish people would get together, their families would gather, and they would celebrate. And each time they would have the, the, the bread and they would have the wine and they would remember what happened. And then eventually what happened was Jesus, he decided, hey, you know what, I'm going to use this opportunity of Passover. And as he gathered for what we, go, we call, we, we concern, we use, we talk about as the Last Supper, as he gathered with his disciples on that evening to celebrate Passover, he basically took something that was very, very ritualistic, and he made it personal. And the one reason we know it's ritualistic is this. Perhaps you've been in this place before in your life, but you do something because your parents did it, and your grandparents, and before them, and before them, right? Maybe you've heard the story before about the woman who she wanted to cook the, the, the ham, the family ham for, for Easter or for Thanksgiving for her family. Her mom had done it years and years before that. Her grandma had done it years and years before that. Now it was her turn to do it for the family. And she took the ham out and she got it all ready and she cut off the ends of the ham and she put it in the, I'm not a cook, so I'll just put it in whatever the thing is you cook a ham in and put it in the oven, right? And she got it all ready. And she asked her mom, why do we cut the ends off? And her mom had no idea. I don't know why we cut the ends off. It's just what my mom always did, so I do it too. And so we cut it off and we put it in there. And so her mom went to her mom, went to her grandma, her, the, the woman's grandmother, and said, why do we do that? And she said, well, my, my cooking roaster was not big enough to fit the ham. So I always cut the ends off so it'd have space to go in, right? So there, sometimes there's even a loss of meaning, but there was no real, because get this, thousands of years later, these aren't the people that were actually brought out of Egypt. And so for some of them, it just became a routine, a rhythm, a ritual that they did every year. Yeah, it was a fun celebration, but it didn't have quite the meaning. And so what Jesus did is he came along and he said, okay, I'm going to bring forth a personal application for you to understand. And guess what? This application isn't just for you. It's going to be for everyone. And Jesus turns everything upside down and get the setting here. He gets in the room with his disciples and, and he's sitting around with them and they're all sitting there together and he looks them in the eyes and he says, this is my blood, this is my body. And eye to eye with Jesus, they consume these elements recognizing the need for a savior. I'm sure they didn't fully understand it at the point, but that personal impact of being with Jesus, wow. 
The point is this, Jesus redefined the cultural norm. They all experienced it the same way and did the same thing and had the same way of doing things. But at that moment, Jesus said, look, there's a new way. And he fulfilled it and he moved forward. And he came and he, and he became the spotless lamb. He became the one that transformed all. And the spiritual bondage was broken. He made it deeply personal. And over time, things took place and, and sometimes there was a, a misunderstanding or sometimes there might have been some who didn't fully follow or know exactly what to do. And in his, his wisdom and in his, his courage, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. And Paul wrote to uh, the, the church in, 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 uh, in Corinth and said, look, I, I want to make sure that you understand what actually took place, what actually is taking place as it pertains to Jesus and what he did for us. And so we're going to read as we walk through this journey together now, we're going to read specifically about this Holy Communion, this, uh, this Eucharist, this Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, it reads like this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he give, had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord is in unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So at the first part, it's kind of instructional. Here's what you're supposed to do. And here Paul gives into this other part to recognize, hey, there's a, there's a need for us personally and how we need to posture ourselves. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, but the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if, you, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when, he when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Another means to which Christ is attempting to bring us along and help us to understand. Looking at verse 24, it's my blood, deeply personal. 28 says to examine yourself, deeply personal. 31 and 32 says do not lose your first love. What's most important? In 33, it's set apart. This is the, the, the biggest thing, set apart. Not condemned with the world, but being different, being holy, being set apart from the world through this practice and in this practice. It's deeply personal. My blood? Jesus is saying, this is my blood. He's saying this isn't just some obscure thing that happened a thousand years ago, but instead, this is my blood, deeply personal for you. Imagine looking into the eyes of Jesus as he proclaimed what was to take place. I've worked with children and, and students in, in the past several years and over the course of the last uh, decade and a half or so and had the opportunity to, to, in many cases, to get down on the level of a child. And, and, and you've probably done this before. You get down on the level of a child and you look them in the eyes 
And you get full focus. That Somebody snapped a picture. I, I, it's one of my favorite moments in ministry since I've been here at this church of me talking to a child at our Ash Wednesday service. And I, I remember that moment vividly because I had their attention. And I was able to, the Spirit gave me the words, and I was able to speak truth and life into that child. It was deeply personal. You know what it's like to be deeply personal when you look in the eyes of another person. It's not some obscure thing that happens elsewhere. And then 1 Corinthians 11 also talks about this examining of self. If you're going to be here for the baptism service later today, here's one thing I'll encourage you to do. If you've been baptized before, or if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a believer in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, I'd love to talk, to you, talk with you after service. But it's a moment of re-examining our commitment. It's a moment of looking back at our own baptism, our own moment, and saying, what What God have you done in me? How can I continue to fulfill these moments, fulfill this life? The second point of that was Jesus took something distant and made it so personal. He took something that they might not always understand why or how, and it was ritualistic for many, and they made it, and he made it personal. But he didn't stop there. In fact, there's a second sacrament, and that's baptism. The second sacrament of baptism is so important that the Nicene Creed, a creed where many men came together uh, for a council of discerning actually the, the nature of the Trinity, but in that they took the entire whole of Scripture, everything in Scripture, and they parsed it down to just several hundred words. Just several hundred words. And in those words, in the whole of Scripture, they chose to keep the words of what baptism is and why it should be done. I want to read just the last Uh, paragraph, it says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, meaning universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So what is baptism? Why is it important? In simple terms, the sacrament of Christian baptism is a ceremony in which a person is immersed in water. They're fully immersed in water. There's other forms to be able to practice based upon, uh, you know, physical complications or restrictions. Somebody could be uh, baptized through sprinkling or pouring. That Those things are uh, another form of it. But typically, or uh, originally, the, the word baptizo means to dip completely. And that completely is important because it's not a partial thing. It's not, okay, I'm going to baptize part of my body, which was practiced to some extent uh, in medieval times. They might baptize one arm and then the other arm they leave so that it can be, still be used in battle. No, they bapt- you baptize your entire body because your entire spirit, your entire being is for God. I love going to uh, the Mexican restaurants anywhere, really. They, they seem to all have the same idea in mind, which is, okay, as soon as you sit down, here's your chips and here's your salsa. Anybody else like to fill up on that and then not be able to order anything? Yep, that's me. And one of the things that I appreciate about some of them is they give you your own cup because in my cup, in, in the cup that I have, right, I can dip, I can double dip, I can do whatever, and I know that I'm going to take care of it. Sometimes they give you that communal bowl, and they expect your family to be, you know, to share. Well, one of my sons, he loves to share. In fact, he shares so much that he puts the the chip down in, and sometimes he leaves it to soak. (laughs) Disgusting, right? The problem with that is we don't 
soak when it comes to baptism. While that chip, so to speak, was dipped completely, it has to come out. And the same thing is true with us. We don't stay in the tank because this symbolically represents a death, a watery grave. Instead, we don't soak, we come up out of the water, and we live differently as a result. It is an indication, it is a representation of what God has done in our life. We recognize the death, but we come alive in Him. Baptism is an outward sign of the decision that you have made, that I have made to follow Jesus. It's a public declaration of your faith in Him and your decision to live transformed. This marks a movement symbolizing your rebirth into the kingdom of God and that you have been rescued, the chains have been broken, that you are not living in bondage anymore by God. But here's the big difference between the Lord's Supper and and baptism, and then we'll move into a little bit, just a a quick background of, of baptism and then why it's important as well. The difference is this, baptism is practiced one time because baptism is a representation of salvation, right? It's, it's a reflection of, it's, a, it's an indicator, a public representation of what God has done in our life. Communion, the Holy Communion or, or Lord's Supper at the same time is a reflection of actually what Pastor Eric was talking about last week of sanctification or the continued process of growing in our faith and becoming more like our Savior. One salvation with a process of sanctification. And why is baptism important? Where where does baptism come from? For thousands of years, thousands of years, uh, the Jewish people recognized and understood the ceremonial washing of things and of people. They understood the the necessity for it ceremonially and, and also quite possibly physically as well, recognizing that things needed to be clean. But it wasn't until a, a man named John uh, came along and he actually was, was so into baptizing that he got the name John the Baptist. He wasn't a Baptist, but he, like in a sense of going to a Baptist church. Okay, never mind. But he, he, he was a person that, that recognized this ceremonial cleansing and he practiced baptism. And in Matthew, actually, chapter 3, we get a little bit of a glimpse into his story and actually recognize exactly what his purpose is and why baptism is important as well. Chapter 3 of Matthew starts in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah and, say, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of This is he who was spoken of through the prophets Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, which that might be our menu for family dinner next month. We'll see. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Jumping down to verse 11, it says, I baptize you with water, after uh, some had questioned his, his motive and his purpose. I baptize with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing forks is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. 
and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and aligning on him, alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. A lot happens in this passage. We recognize the, the start of a, a practice, a Christian practice, a ritual called baptism, but we see so much more. We see our Savior, in, Savior in, in humility and peace step forward. And while John the Baptist is screaming and shouting that we must repent, Jesus, one who doesn't need to repent, still steps forward and chooses to be baptized. For Jesus recognizes that it's more than just simple repentance. There is part of that as, as the reason for baptism, but he recognizes the nature of what's to take place, and he foreshadows what will take place in his own life. First point is repentance marks an open door for cleansing. It's the nature of a means of grace. And this means of grace term that I've been talking about, I'm going to uh, really get into in just a moment. But this means of grace recognizes that there's a, a specific touch, an additional touch that takes place through faith and through action and through physical things here in our lives. It's not about your heritage or your background or where you come from. Your, your, your repentance, so to speak, needs to take place regardless. And even further, what John the Baptist says is you need to get in the Jordan. You need to get dunked. You need to die with Christ. And faith must be personal. But it's not always private. The reason we practice baptism is not because John, but because Jesus told us to, to go public with our faith. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the faith in uh, in the personal, and he's faith in the public. And the point is, faith is personal and public in the name of Jesus. I mean, recognize that in the Great Commission. We see Jesus' last words before he leaves on earth. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptize. That, that practice of baptism is so important that it became part of Jesus' last call for those who make disciples here on this earth. Faith is personal, not private. And the other part of that is what happens on the inside often, and or always, I should say, comes out of us, right? What is on the inside of us will go public. I can, I can take my wedding ring off, I think. Yep, I got it. I can take my wedding ring off right now. Now, let me just ask you, if I, if I put this right here, besides uh, maybe knocking it into the baptistry, it sets right here, nothing happens with it. Am I still married right now? Of course, I'm still married, right? I might, I might forget it and, and lose it. I might get in trouble, right? But I'm still married if I'm not wearing my wedding ring. Now, baptism doesn't make you a Christian, but what it does is it opens up the door for God to be able to, uh, to, to change you. And at the same time, it shows other people what's taken place in your life. At that moment of public baptism, you are expressing to all who are here and all who are listening, look, I am a new creation. I, I am made new by my Savior, not by my own action or, by, or this baptism alone, but because of who God is and what he's done in my life. Faith explodes. Think about this. Faith explodes when personal story meets the power of Jesus. You know how I know that? And, I, and I, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but I know that because the Spirit speaks the loudest when we proclaim what Christ has done in our lives. 
Think about that for a moment. When you hear someone else's testimony, maybe it's uh, here or just going to coffee with somebody or sitting down for lunch, when someone shares their testimony, what God has done in their life, it's moving. It's life-changing. Here's what God literally has done, and life is different. Someone is transformed. Someone is going to enter into the kingdom because of what God has done in their life. That should move us. If it doesn't, wake up. So, that being said, we've talked about these two elements. Perhaps for you, this was not necessarily uh, new information, but it was more of a recap or an affirmation. Let's, let's talk about this concept of a means of grace. Understanding this phrase historically, you would note that the phrase has only been around for maybe uh, a thousand years at the most. It was used in the Church of England as a, as a way of, of talking about the, the practices or the principles that are done in life so that people could experience a greater sense of faith or a deeper relationship with Jesus. And eventually, this, this gentleman um, that I like, his name is John Wesley, came along, and he created three categories to which to understand a means of grace. The first one is instituted means of grace, and these are basically things that are commanded by Jesus. We should pray, we should, we should read our scripture, we should fellowship, we should uh, engage in the Lord's Supper, we should be baptized, we should uh, be fasting. These are instituted. The second one is prudent means of grace, which are wise patterns to follow, right? Being part of a small group or, or uh, attending a, a fellowship. And then finally, the third one is our general means of grace, and these are simply an attitude or a habit that which brings an awareness of God's presence. You and I both know there's places that we can go in our life, physically or figuratively, where when we go there, we can hear God's voice. And there's other places we can go where we know we're not going to hear His voice as well because of the noise or because of what else, whatever else is there. But these are self-denial taking up our cross. So a means of grace is God coming through something created to help us. A means of grace is God using specific things, and in the tangible form, uh, a communion time or Lord's Supper or a baptism, baptism service that even we are part of where we watch. Think, think briefly for me for a minute back to a story uh, uh, in, in John chapter 9 about a man who was blind from birth. I'm amazed by this story. This man is walking through a trial. He's walking through a storm, which none of us love storms. None of us love to walk through a trial. But in essence, recognizing that, that God used this storm, this trial, this man was born blind, and he, and, he, and he lived every day of his life blind. And when he met Jesus, something changed. But it wasn't simply like other times where Jesus either touched him or he spoke uh, healing into existence. Instead, this time was a little different. He actually took dirt, and he mixed it uh, with, with saliva, and he put it in the man's eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't know a lot about medicine, but I don't think dirt is the best thing. I know I've heard the phrase, I just rub some dirt on it, right? But I think that's just for like somebody who, uh, you know, just tells you to, to suck it up and, and move on. It's not necessarily a doctor's prescription. But what happens, right? This man, he's able to see. And so when we look at this, I can't help but realize and recognize that Jesus aids this man through something created, dirt and, and saliva. He brings them together and brings forth an opportunity for this man to experience a means of grace. The second part of it is this. It's a point of contact for the releasing of faith. 
When we look at any ministry within our church, when we look at anything that we do, any span that we have, any way that we we use our time, talent, and treasure, all of them should be considered an opportunity for us to, to express a means of grace to the people around us by releasing of faith. And what I mean by that is we, everything that we have should be used as a tool to be able to express and share the gospel. Places, the things that we do, our actions, the needs of faith that we have, everything that we are, everything that we do. As I think about that illustration, kind of walking back and, and, and reflecting upon that time when I was in the ocean, the ocean kind of pushing back and, and not wanting me around, I am so reminded by the reality that, look, it's not just about a ritual, but instead it's personal. Meaning that the people around us, they don't want a ritual. They don't want to just go through the motions. People around us, they want to know the real product, the genuine product, and that is our Savior. And so when we talk about a means of grace and we talk about what it means to express a means of grace in our own life, should it not be, or should, it should not be a simple ritual. Instead, it should be an opportunity for us to take the things that God has entrusted to us to steward to be able to express his love and help others to know him in a real and lasting way. So what things in your life are a means of grace? Baptism, the Lord's Supper. Maybe a person, a child, a spouse, friend, a possession, a job, a hobby, an ability, maybe a trial, maybe the mud that God uses. Everything in life can be used to receive grace and to give grace. The challenge of the the sacraments is that sometimes they become mundane, sometimes they become just something that we do rather than something that God wants to do in and through us. But the second challenge of that is sometimes we minimize it to say, okay, these are the two moments in which this happens rather than recognizing that God wants to do more and he wants to do it all the time. So what time, what talent, what treasure do you have that God wants to use to express faith through a means of grace? God has put the people in your life. God has positioned you specifically in this time, in this place, in your context for a reason. What is it? Who is it for? God wants others to express and to, and to, 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 uh, to be able to identify and to know what it means to experience the grace that only he can give. And perhaps he wants to use you as the vessel. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and we thank you for these two sacraments. We thank you for these two moments to which we can practice and walk through and understand you in a greater way. We thank you for the reflection that takes place. We thank you for the testimony that takes place. We thank you for the fact that you created these to be corporate things where we gather in a place and we celebrate you and celebrate what you've done, and we remember and we we reflect upon who you are and what you've done. And God, at the same time, we, we search ourselves and we recognize, God, that there are things in our lives that you have granted to us, that you have given us. And you haven't done that by accident. You haven't done that by sheer happenstance. Instead, you've done it intentionally on purpose because you, you want to use it. You want to use our relationships. You want to use our authority. You want to use our resources. 
God, may we see those things not as our own, but may we see those things as an opportunity to be able to glorify you and to bring more to the foot of the cross. So God, I pray for each person here, each person joining online, that we would each one inventory what you've given us. And we would use it to the best of our ability to glorify you. God, go with us this week. I pray that you would go alongside us and that you would go before us, Father, open and, and soften hearts. I pray that you would continue to impact us and empower us. May we, may we experience your grace and may we be grace givers in all that we do. God, we thank you for the way that you continue to move. We thank you for bringing us freedom. In your son's name we pray. Amen. The sacraments are holy, but the desire for continued experience of grace can be felt and lived out in any area in which God has given us. Go this week on mission. Go this week ready to explore and to step forward and to examine and to be God's hands and feet. Go this week in peace. God bless. Dismiss. Thank you again for spending time with us today. Thank you especially to those of you who give to CCWC. It is through your faithfulness that makes this ministry possible. Also, if you have any questions about today's teaching or if you want to learn more about CCWC, feel free to contact our office, check the web, or follow us on our social media platforms. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we do encourage you to take a moment to subscribe and share it with friends. Let this be a blessing to someone else that you love in your life. You're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning for worship, or until then, we'll catch you on the next one. God bless.